Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. Hi, I'm Greg Monteith. And I'm John Polstra. Today, John has John has found a very interesting article for us to discuss. You don't know how much I wanted to begin by saying, hello, my name is Donald Trump. <laughs> I thought about that a number of times and I just haven't done it, but I had to say it. Okay. All right. So we are looking- You can't at- cast a vote for him either. <laughs> I know. I, I, know. <laughs> I, I don't think I could cast a vote for him even if I were American, John. <laughs> That, that could not happen, I don't think. But no, no. Not being American, I cannot vote. Um, so we are looking at something uh, called, an article called Everything Doesn't Happen for a Reason, written by Tim Lawrence on his blog, The Adversity Within. And this is, uh, so, so how, did we, how did you come across this, John? So I was at a meetup. It was around uh, online businesses and that kind of stuff. And we were talking about blog posts and the the exercise of publishing a lot of blog posts or podcasts and in the process of doing that landing on your niche or your area that resonates with people and this particular article was given as an example of a post that went viral and i had seen it before and i was like oh i'll look that up when i get home so i looked it up i threw it to you and said hey what do you think? Maybe we should podcast on this. But I was very careful to, that we did. We have not pre-discussed this. So sometimes no, we do. Sometimes all, we man. don't. But I, I like. I sometimes I think our conversations are more free flowing when we record and we haven't discussed them before. So yeah. Well, you know, you're you're definitely right about the uh, re- response to this thing. I I'm still hitting load more comments. Okay, now I've got them all. I don't know how many comments there are here, but. This is massive. 480 comments. Wow. 485 comments. Yeah. So that's a lot. That's an awful lot. And I think he's turned comments off because he's just got so many and can't, can't reply to them. Look like they're all within the same month that he published it. So that's pretty fast coming in too. So how did you want to approach this? What do you think the best way is? Well, I had I wrote down well, first of all, I think it's an interesting topic. Everything doesn't happen for a reason. Because my initial inclination was, well, I think a lot of Christians think that everything does happen for a reason. Mm. Although I bounced this off my wife and she's like, nah, I'm not so sure about that. And I was like, oh, okay. Huh. And then I thought, well, what do I think? And I thought, well, you know what's that common phrase, you know, if something good happens <laughs> or something good ultimately comes of something. Uh-huh. Nine times out of ten, the next thing out of someone's mouth is, "Well, I guess everything happens for a reason." Yeah, or th- or thanking God because God God must have orchestrated it because it's good. Right, but if it's really, 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 really bad, I thought you know when something really atrocious happens, do I think it happens for a reason? And part of me is like, well, you know, there are those things that. Turn, you know, good comes from bad, but um, <laughs> I don't know. I just like the Lawrence writes this article with some some fire. <laughs> There's also, yeah. I think, an element of hope. I don't know. I almost sensed an element of hopelessness in it. I was mm. wondering if you. So I don't know. I just thought there's some tie into 
our podcast, our discussion, I, I think maybe it's kind of refreshing that it doesn't seem to be coming from a Christian perspective. And I don't know. I just had this this inkling, this hunch that that hmm. you would either really like it and embrace the article or you would have huge problems with it. Wow. Well, that sounds like you're inviting me to... <laughs> To answer Show that your one. cards. <laughs> Show my cards. Okay, I do want to come back to something you 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 mentioned earlier. Like I th- I thought you said some things. Well, I'll come back to it. Like I say, um, I mean, I, I I thought this was really valuable. I don't know that. Um, I don't know how complete it is. And I think when I was looking through some of the comments again. There are a lot of comments. I couldn't read them all, but I, I managed to get through, I would say, at least a quarter of them. And there was some some good stuff in the comments, um, maybe not stuff that I fully agreed with, but but would kind of either pointed out a helpful direction or excluded an unhelpful one. Um, I thought, I mean, this idea that everything happens for a reason, first of all, it's a tricky idea, right? So if, if you don't mind, if I jump right to one of the comments, there was a comment by Bill Dobbs about uh, science. And if you take religion out of the mix, then you understand that everything happens for a reason and that's, that's scientific. And I think that's it's the, the, the comment that he makes, um, it misses the mark, but I think the idea, an idea within it is helpful and that's this distinction between causality and purpose. Right? And so I think when we're talking about, so in other words, Let's figure out what exactly we're talking about. If there's fire in this guy's article, where's the fire come from? And I don't think the fire has anything to do with causality. My brother and father died in a car accident. I can tell you, I can tell you the reason for that accident in terms of the cause, right? There, are, there were skid marks on the road. Uh, there are people who assess and analyze these skid marks. Um, I, can, I can tell you the... the the orientation of the two vehicles. So it was a it was a head-on collision between two vehicles. My father driving one and driving um, in a fifty. It's an eighty k zone, so it's fifty miles per hour. He was driving hundred miles an hour, doubling the speed limit. Was legally drunk or intoxicated, however you want to say it. Um, so I mean, there there are a lot of whys in terms of or reasons in terms of cause. Yeah, inebriation driving too fast, lost control, other car there at the exact at that exact, you know, location at the wrong time obviously. Impact was too strong. Four to five passengers died. There you go, that's the reason. But of course that's not the reason we're talking about when we talk about there's a reason for everything. We're talking about teleology. We're talking about end result, we're talking about purpose. Would it help to read the first part of this article just to set the context? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so I'm going to read like the first three or four paragraphs. Sure. I emerge from this conversation dumbfounded. I've seen this millions of times before, but it still gets me every time. I'm listening to a man tell a story. A woman he knows was in a devastating car accident. Her life shattered in an instant. She now lives in a state of near-permanent pain, a paraplegic, many of her hopes stolen. He tells of how she had been a mess before the accident, but that the tragedy had engendered positive changes in her life. That she was, as a result of this devastation, living a wonderful life. And then he utters the words. The words that are responsible for nothing less than emotional, spiritual, and psychological violence. 
Everything happens for a reason. That this was something that had to happen in order for her to grow. That's the kind of bullshit that destroys lives, and it's categorically untrue. So how would you link that to the story that you were just telling, or the situation that you described? Well, again, when you say everything happens for a reason, we're not talking about, the, the very next sentence shows you what we're talking about. We're not talking about causality. What were the causes? What were the physical, um, logical uh, causes that precipitated this event? Instead, so I'm reading his next sentence there, which I think is exactly what he's focusing on, that this was something that had to happen in order for her to grow. So it's the in order for. It had to happen in order for. Its purpose, its result. And this is... So in order for you to ultimately find God, your father and brother had to die. Yeah, which I think is complete... Would be a horrible way to put it together. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, one, that's one sort of outcome. But it's really, it's kind of taking something that, 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 that could be a correct, there could be some, well, no, I mean, some of this stuff too, John, I mean, it's so hard. How do you, how do you attribute, um, how do you link together a chain of events to impute necessity from um, a situation, right? So is the, was that situation necessary for me to become a Christian? No, I don't think so. I, I think there are lots of good, good reasons to argue against that. In fact, I'm not sure what that situation was necessary for. I think this is something that because it happened, things changed in my life, right? But in it had to happen in order for something else to happen. That's 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 thinking about it the wrong way around. That's so, so subtle. Time, well, I think this so. This is right? so tricky. I think so. So, because there was an accident that occurred that my father was clearly to blame for, that killed four people, that was even in a in a in a a city at that point of a hundred thousand people, not big, but not small was big news. It was, you know, it was very, the effect on me was that my family name was shamed, right? So it was very difficult to be in that place. Not everybody knew me for sure, but a lot of people did. And so because of that event, many things changed in my life. But, but yeah, I I think essentially what this is, this is called, you know, in philosophical terms is the greater good argument. And the greater good argument has a whole bunch of problems associated with it. And it is often um, adopted by Christians. You know, God had to, this had to happen in order for this good thing to come about. This was part of a, the precursors for this good event, good situation, good condition to prevail. You know, and this, this says a couple of things, um, n- not only about you know, what I'm struggling with here, which is how would you know, right? Number one. And number two, it's really actually the, the, the wrong way to say it, at least in terms of someone's life, in terms of large major events, you know, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of something that would make sense and I'm having a hard time, but it seems like it would be more plausible, you know, a shift 
an earthquake here opened up um, a valley or a passage or whatever, a way for, for two remote communities to um, have better access to each other. I, I don't know. Like even that, it just seems so very, very strained, this in order that. Um, but the other thing that it, the greater good argument does is it sets up a relationship between good and evil. And so in the Christian faith, where we understand the Bible seems to paint a fairly definite picture or, or attribute some very um, categorical understandings to God in terms of goodness. So you might read some of the Old Testamental accounts and say, this isn't very good. God's not acting in a good way. And yet, nevertheless, through the Old Testament, through the whole Bible, Christian Bible itself, um, God is kind of indicated as good. And yet, what happens through the greater good argument is good and evil, there's a dependence that's created. So evil good is dependent upon evil to accomplish its designs. Or if you put that in Christian terms, we would have to say something like, God is dependent upon uh, Shatan or the devil, the adversary, etc., in order for God to accomplish God's purposes. Now, the the Christian Bible is is, you would be very hard-pressed. I cannot think of any sorts of situations you know, outside of this very kind of limited and strange orientation within the book of Job that, that, that puts across anything remotely like this. Although, you know, Job is more of, if you like, a, a test or a challenge um, that exists between these God and, and in this case, it's even, even Satan in, this, in the case of the book of Job is, is the phraseology is different. And so it's kind of unclear exactly what we're looking at. Obviously, some sort of entity and so some sort of challenge arises from some sort of entity. But so in other words, the whole greater good argument puts God and goodness in relationship with the adversary and evil in a way that the entire main flow of the biblical narratives would contradict. And would you say that I don't think Lawrence's article goes in that direction, right? No, I think he purposely. I don't. I don't know if he's Christian or not, but he doesn't seem that he makes a couple references to God. But because what's interesting is, so he, he he sets up the article the way I read it, and then he starts to talk about grief, mm. which kind of takes us in a different direction. So I don't know. I don't know if you want to follow the flow of the article, if you just want to use it as a jumping off point. Well, I thought the I thought the whole point about grief was fantastic, and I think it, through the middle. At about the middle of the article, maybe a little way further further on, um, he makes a couple. Well, he makes three really good points about about grieving, right? So right after the the part you read, and he's talking about you know that these are myths, um, the myth of things happen for a reason. He says these myths are nothing more than platitudes cloaked in sophistication, and they preclude us from doing the one and only thing that we must do when our lives are turned upside down grieve. Well, what do you think of that? I mean, based on your experience? I would say that they preclude us, I would rephrase that, preclude us from doing um, the the main or primary thing we must do when our lives are turned upside down. It's not the one and only thing I have to do, right? 
I'm forced to question. I'm forced to be in pain. I'm forced to reflect. I'm forced to move forward. I'm forced to rely on other people. You know, because I, 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 I stop functioning. My, my ability to be self-sufficient or, you know, intersufficient diminishes greatly when I'm in uh, heavy uh, uh, suffering. So I agree with him that grief is absolutely essential. You know, to, to not grieve at those moments is, is enormously problematic. But I think he puts it even better about midway through. And I'll, I'll start with um, – uh, this is a, another paragraph. This is why all the platitudes and fixes and posturing are so dangerous. In unleashing them upon those we claim to love, we deny them the right to grieve. And this is the point that I think is excellent. In so doing, we deny them the right to be human. And I think this, that, that link there is an essential link because I don't think grieving during the, the, a time when, when you know, something disastrous has happened, when a great loss has occurred, grief is not the only thing that I do. And at certain points, it is not the main thing that I do. He's saying it's something that we don't even choose. So if you so backing up a little bit, he's he's also kind of mm. making this point that that often through kind of self, the self help genre, the the notion is that you know once we take once people take responsibility for themselves and their lives, then they can move forward. Mm-hmm. And he's saying a couple paragraphs before where you're reading, he says, "quote There's a lot of take responsibility platitudes in the personal development space, and they are largely nonsense. People tell others to take responsibility when they don't want to understand, because understanding is harder than posturing. Telling someone to quote take responsibility for their losses is a form of benevolent masturbation. It's the inverse of inspirational porn. It's sanctimonious porn." He's laying it on pretty thick there. This (laughs) this is the paragraph I thought was good. Personal responsibility implies that there's something to take responsibility for. You don't take responsibility for being raped or losing your child. You take responsibility for how you choose to live in the wake of the horrors that confront you, but you don't choose whether you grieve. We're not that smart or powerful. When hell visits us, we don't get to escape grieving. Yeah. That part I questioned a little bit because I wondered, and I say this completely from the position of never having done any heavy grieving yet in my life. So, you know, slap me across the head if if, if I'm headed in the wrong direction here. Is it fair to say, though, that, that sometimes people choose not to grieve? They don't choose, but they avoid it. They numb it or they mask it or they run away from it. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's a big part of what's going on when other people, I mean, this is something I was going to raise a bit later, but when, when, when folks actually offer these sorts of platitudes, um, you know, I think they're coming from a place of fear themselves and they're trying to be consolatory, but probably more so to themselves than to the person who is grieving. But yeah, I mean, uh, the, my point about grief and I, I, I hear him, you know, you don't choose whether you grieve, uh, agreed. But, but I can be in grief for a period, but that, 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 that actual act of grieving, whether it's reflecting on the loss, feeling the loss, thinking about what life is like now without the, 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 what's missing, right, in the, in the wake of, of the absence. Sometimes that's not the primary component. It's always there. It's maybe uh, – it's like a – 
you know, in a symphony, it's, it's, a, it's an underlying uh, theme that may and often does come to the fore. But it is not the only thing. And I guess that would be the distinction I would try to raise here. Grieving is important. And I think it's part of what it is for us to be human. We don't get to choose not to do it. We can't avoid it and we can bury it. And I think a lot of times when people are offering these platitudes, one of the, um, I'll go to that now, one of the people, um, who is this? It was interesting. Yeah, this is from Joel Porter. People are, not, are trying to comfort and don't have the right words. And my response to that is no, not at all. This is in the comments. This is in the comments. Um, yes, I think that people are trying to comfort, but who are they trying to comfort? I think in these cases that... They're trying to comfort themselves? They're trying to comfort themselves. And it's not that they lack the words. They rather lack the right conceptions, right, of what's going on, of how to deal with the situation or how to even frame it for themselves. And out of those conceptions come the words. I think the words do reflect our positions, right? We don't just sort of throw things out there. But what happens is we're caught in a situation where we're afraid and, uh, you know, it's overwhelming and we say what we think is the best thing, but for whom? I think for, for people in that position, they're saying it for themselves, right? And so this is, there was one other comment. I looked through all the comments that I had loaded. There was one other comment by simply the letter M to the same effect. And I think that person's on the money there that most times these things aren't people, you know, it, I do think that in one sense people mean well, but the notion that they mean well does not, you know, Joel Porter's response is don't, don't beat them up for that. And my response to that is, well, th- there's a reality here of understanding of self-awareness and I am responsible for my own lack of self-awareness. I'm still responsible for the fact that, you know what, I am in a position here of looking at and being in the presence of someone suffering great loss, of being overwhelmed by that, not being aware that I'm overwhelmed, not being aware that I'm very fearful of what would happen if that situation, you know, this is striking too close to home for me, in other words. And I say things that are meant to help myself by doing exactly what you suggested, which is avoiding grief. Because I think there are, you know, grief is not just this person over here who's had the loss is grieving. We're all grieving because we're all touched by this unthinkable loss, this, this unacceptable loss, this intolerable loss. But in the face of it, for those who are not in the position of being reminded every waking moment and probably through your dreams that this loss is real and you cannot circumvent it, for those of us who just come in for a funeral, a wake, for whatever, we can go away and we can stuff that back down. We can forget about it, right? And so we can say those things because we can allow our fears to dominate us. You know, and I think at a certain point that can happen too when you're in grief, your fear can come to the fore and, and rule you. But I think the, the, um, the impact of that and the evidence that it's taking place are far more significant. You know, you see people, and that's, that's in my mind when you see people acting out. Right? You see people getting drunk all the time. You see people having rampant sex all the time. You see different ways that human beings adopt to cope with the fact that they can't cope rightly with loss, which is grief. Right? They won't go down that road, but um, they're essentially you know, 
those ex- other expressions are ex- essentially traumatic expressions. So I wondered, based on your experience, like, so his advice is, so there's a section towards the end called what to offer instead. Mm. And he says, in, quote, instead, the most powerful thing you can do is acknowledge, literally say the words, I acknowledge your pain. I am here with you. Note that I said with you, not for you. For implies that you are going to do something. That is not for you to enact, but to stand with your loved one, to suffer with them, to listen to them, to do everything but something is incredibly powerful. Hmm. So based on your experience, is that... Does that advice fit you? Do you resonate with that? Or do you say, no, I would have preferred something else? Well, I think it's, I think it's both being with, I'm here with you and I'm here for you. But I think what the best way for it to be is someone is here with you first in order to be here for you. In other words, my being with you is an act of being for you. So I'm on the one hand, I'm escaping or holding at bay the fact that fear, my personal fear, would prompt me to say silly, stupid things. Like, it's okay, it happened for a reason, you'll be a better person or whatever, right? So on the one hand, that's actually by not saying those things, that's someone being for you as opposed to allowing their own needs at that moment of crisis or that kind of moment of being overwhelmed to, to reign. But I think also just in general that someone can be with me is on the one hand acknowledging this is too large to be for me. This is, the situation is too large for you to offer any possible solution. And yet within that context, acknowledging that, it's seven o'clock and my fridge is empty because I haven't been thinking about food and the fact that you just brought me food is clearly for me. It is more than just with me. So that's the type of orientation that I would best suggest. A sense of awareness that the situation is overwhelming and that somebody cannot fix it for me. An awareness that their fear as right as, as it is for them to be afraid and to be worried and to realize, oh my God, I don't know what I'd do if this was happening to me. That just needs to be kept to yourself and not expressed through these kinds of platitudes. And, and you know, as I said earlier, I think that's a lot about self-awareness. And some people, that's just going to come out because they don't have that self-awareness. There's a degree of personal growth that they have not um, undertaken or maturity that they just, they don't have yet. Um, but within that context of understanding the immensity of the situation, I absolutely want people to be for me. I absolutely need people to bring me food. I need people to ask me, so you have on your calendar here, this thing about your car. Um, did that get done? Oh, I totally, no, I didn't, I haven't even looked at the calendar. Okay. Would it, would be helpful if, you know, I just kind of jotted down a couple things from your calendar and put them on my calendar and just give you a ring. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think that, that that would probably help. You know, so so it's got to be both. And I, I really appreciate the, the kind of the intensity of um I'm trying to get his name again. Is it Tim? 
uh, Tim's kind of perspective here, but, but it, it has to be both, you know, because even in a certain sense, being with me is a way of being for me that denies and refuses to accept the, the fallacy that somebody else can solve this for me. Right? So ultimately, yes, the, the, these are ways, they're very, very entwined and how you structure it I think is important because, um, well, yeah, that's all, I'll, I'll leave that there. I don't know how well that answers. Again, it, I like the way he kind of sums it up towards the end. Be there. Only be there. Do not leave when you feel uncomfortable or when you feel like you're not doing anything. In fact, it's when you feel uncomfortable and like you're not doing anything that you must stay. Because it is in those places, in the shadows of horror, we re- rarely allow ourselves to enter where the beginnings of healing are found. This healing is found when we have others who are willing to enter that space alongside us. Every grieving person on earth needs these people. And the cynical side of me would say, and this is where people would say, yeah, and that person could be God. And people, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm taking this off in the negative land, but <laughs> I just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, well, I, I guess I, since I haven't dealt with a situation as deep or grieved, like in a situation like this, I can't relate to it. And I guess I have heard people say, yes, you know, God met me there and God gave me peace and God helped make it better. I personally just cannot have, I have no idea what that would look like. Well, and, and I think that's a key, right? In other words, you should know what that looks like. And if someone is saying this happened, I mean, I'm, I hammer on this drum all the time, but if someone says God met me there and, and that, that really helped, um, then depending upon the conversation or, you know, depending upon who the person's talking to or what the presentation, nature of the presentation is, there should be an openness to explain what that means, what that looked like, how that was laid out and how that helped. So that it makes sense, right? I might not believe that these particular situations or understandings could be attributed to God, right? Somebody might be an atheist and say, that's not God. But they should never, ever, 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 ever have to say, that totally makes no sense, right? That, that, in other words, you say that that helps you. It, but believe it anyway because it was my experience and that's what well, God did for me. No, no, but what I, what I mean is if I say... Let me give you, see if I can give you an example. If I say, yeah, I was struggling with my father and brother's death and God helped me out. And you say, how? I should give you an answer that you, as a human being who has some sense, if not a personal experience, who has some sense of what it might be like to lose a sibling. And in my case, all my siblings, because I only had one and to lose my father. I should be able to give you an explanation that if you internalize that to some extent, you too could understand how that might offer comfort. 
Okay, that's helpful because my experience has been in those situations that God is a magic wand. God has brought this amazing peace or this amazing comfort that's unexplainable and that it's wonderful and it's good and it's helpful, but it can't quite be explained. Yeah, and the, because it's God, because it's I don't know, not, not because it's God, but in other words, it's okay not to be able to explain it because it's from God. Yeah, and that's just utter crap, because Christianity turns on testimony. I was not alive during that period of antiquity when a person named Jesus, you know, was born, lived, and died. Yet that period is absolutely crucial for Christian belief. So without the testimony, in this case, the written uh, accounts and the uh, writings concerning that period in terms of, you know, what it means to live in the wake of believing that Jesus lived, died, and was who the gospels, gospel writers claim that Jesus was. This is crucial. Without this, there is no Christianity. So testimony is huge. And so for people to be able to claim, for Christians to claim that they have undergone or experienced significant, um, I'm just going to, I'm going to use a a heavy word here, healing from God on an emotional level. Like it's one thing to say, um, God healed my leg. And you might say, well, how did that happen? He said, well, you know, I had a spiral fracture or I had this type of fracture and there were 14 bolts in my leg. Here's a, an x-ray dated this date. Here's an x-ray dated a year later after all that whole process didn't work. The bone's here, it's whole, and there are no bolts there. And I've got doctor's signatures indicating that this is me. This is my record. This is such and such. This isn't a, a hoax. Okay, well, I, I'm, I'm down to the choice of whether I believe it or not. Right, and depending upon who the person is and how credible the information seems, you know, um, I may or may not believe it. But I'm clear about what it means, and there's a clear under, uh, explanation of what happened. God healed me. How? Here's how. Check, check these photos out. Or you know what? You can see the scar in my leg. You can see here. Here are some issues that I had. Here's a letter I had crossing. You know, taking the airplane because I have to provide this, indicating that there are four bolts in my like signed and dated by blah, 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 blah from such and such a hospital. And, and here's a recent x-ray. Or you know what? Better yet, you want to pay for an x-ray. We'll go down the street and x-ray this leg. You'll see. Okay, well, that would be even more, more potential evidence. And then I'm in a bit of a quandary if, I don't, if, I'm, if I'm finding that hard to believe. Okay, this is, I'm going to have to think about this. But if someone has something emotional that happens and they still, and they have no explanation, well, I can tell you that I felt badly and I, felt, I feel better now. Well, I get that when I eat cornflakes. I like cornflakes. I feel better. I get that when I watch certain TV shows. I love Doctor Who. <laughs> you know, don't... In other words, there's a... This, if this thing happens, it is not just for you. It is never, ever just for you. Because the necessity of testimony to the Christian faith is intrinsic. It's not optional. It's intrinsic. It's essential. And so every bit, every element of testimony that is available to others is something that should be cultivated such that I, as someone who's experienced healing in my life, 
can explain that in a way you may not believe it, but it has to be understandable as an act of healing. So or this, else, why, why am I claiming it? So this takes us in an interesting direction, one that I was curious to go with you. So in the first part of the article, he talks about grief. He's talking about grief. And then he talks, of, and then he, I think this is kind of profound, but I'm wondering mm. if you agree with it or not. He says, some things in life cannot be fixed. Uh. They can only be carried. Mm-hmm. And what I hear in that is they can't ever be healed. Mm-hmm. Well, is that your question? Yeah, well, it's kind of, <laughs> what's, what do you think about that? And And does... Duh, would you say that Christianity, what would Christianity say to that? Well, I, th- I think I, I, I would both agree and disagree. And, and, and hopefully my explanation will help you not think that I'm playing fast and loose by having my cake and eating it too. Um, I would agree in the sense that, you know, for example, the loss of my father and my brother remain a loss that loss cannot be made good upon. The untimely death of my brother, he was 20, shouldn't have died. That shouldn't have happened, right? The, the unreasonable and, and, and uh, I'm trying to think of strong enough words, um, irresponsible, um, shameful, uh, totally blameworthy acts of my father, he should not have made those choices. Those were not choices. He had enough skill, enough savvy know-how to not to have made those. And that loss and everything associated with it will remain a loss forever. Right? So when I think about my father, I'm constantly reminded, uh, you know, it's not doesn't have the 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 intensity, the 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 the, the piquance that it, it had at one point much many years ago, but I'm, I'm reminded of the fact that, you know, the relationship between he and I never did, never had the opportunity to mend, you know, he refused my offers. He, he went to counseling once and, uh, that was, a um, uh, not, not productive to be, uh, to minimize entirely. But the flip side in terms of Christianity is that God's justice if you will, if you want to talk about justice. So part of my, my, my thinking with God was, hey, listen, without a doubt, I mean, I've been sexually abused by my father. Um, I've been emotionally abused. I mean, I can, the, the kind of twists and games and, you know, uh, financial uh, uh, games that he played with me. And then on top of it all, he, he, he does something like this, and this is how he ends his life. It's how he ends my brother's life. Um, what is your justice here, God? Who are you going to punish? Are you going to punish my father for being a sexual abuser? Are you going to punish him for being an irresponsible, blameworthy fool who killed those people? You know, I, that, may suit, that may suit you. You may feel better about that, God, but I don't feel better about that. I don't want my dad punished. I wanted to do good stuff, normal stuff. I wanted to actually go fishing with my dad or play baseball with my dad or do father-son stuff because despite the fact that I hated what he did and I hated him for it, I also loved him. There's that huge bundle of tension that 
the, the hate does not negate the love. And it certainly doesn't negate the fact that whatever you think is justice for you, God, <laughs> screw your justice. That's not justice for me, right? Even, even at the time when I understood and believed in the, or understood the idea of hell, even if I may not have believed it as an agnostic, as someone burning forever, that's not what I wanted. I, I, wanted, I wanted apologies for the wrong. I wanted new right action. You know, that's what people want. That's justice. But I think what the Christian perspective on this is that justice here is always overruled. It is always trumped by love. And the, the power, if you will, of God loving you, the, the, the material evidence for that in human life is that there is an experience that you have, whether of your own or through others, of God loving us that is able to speak into that situation as a surrogate, if you like, for that situation, if not a surrogate for that relationship. So my own experience of not of seeking God at all, but of being at Labrie and realizing, you know, the, um, <laughs> the, I've told you this story before, but being there in that tutorial room with Jim and having realized only that week, you know, the, the biggest, baddest part of this whole abuse thing was not just that my father felt this way about me, but by being my father, by virtue of being my father, he was making a statement for every father. Something like, if I, as your father, choose to abuse you, neglect you, and treat you in this way, surely every father would. And that was this kind of incredibly heavy weight on me that, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at Jim in tears and him telling me, I would love to have you as my son. And all of a sudden seeing the, the weight of the past four to six months, eight months with this man, whom I have grown to respect, whom I have grown unbeknownst to myself to love and admire as being part of his family, as working alongside of him. I mean, I think the reality of the Christian situation is God does not answer so much our complaints. He does not answer to the complaints. He answers with God's self. And for somebody to say, That hasn't happened. Well, that's legitimate. I think, I think, again, this whole idea of testimony. So in my case, my story should have an impact. And I'm not really bringing it out here. I'm just kind of putting it out in a small way. I'm leaving out a lot of the substantiating material that allowed me in that position at that time 20 years ago to be overwhelmed and made that claim of, I'd like to have you, I wish, you know, I'd love to have you as my son. Very different from my father-in-law saying the exact same words to me and me thinking, I've already had one problematic parent. I do not want another. I will not call you that. I will not call you dad. So I think the Christian perspective on this would be, um, on the one hand, yes, some things can only be carried. On the other hand, God is not the one who makes good on our issues, but God is the one who shows up as God. God doesn't answer, our, answer us with this or that. God answers us with God's self. 
And I think that is the, the, the core of what it is to experience um, God loving us. And again, that's, that doesn't happen in, in a direct sense for everyone. You know, for me in my situation, I'm looking at this with Jim and realizing, thinking to myself, how did he, where did he come up with this? I mean, how did this happen? This is the, the lowest point I have ever recognized the whole abuse and, and kind of parental absence of my father and, and, and just the, 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 the terribly low value of my father as a father and, and the impact and significance, even if it's a lie in terms of my value, right? Because I'm constantly as an abuse survivor pushing back against the lies. But to see Jim come up with that, to realize this is a relationship that I would love to have, even though I didn't know that I would have loved to have it. Because I mean, who as an abuse survivor is going to think that way? You don't think that way. You survive. You don't go looking for these crazy ideas like, oh, wouldn't it be great to be part of this family? Well, that's stupid. No one's going to do that because the loss involved is just so incredibly painful. And yet to be presented with it is both to see how wonderful it is and to see how impossible it is and to wonder where that impossibility came from. And, you know, there's a whole line of questioning and interrogation and examination that I went through over a process of years to come to a point where I could say, this was Jim, yes, but this was more than Jim. You know, and so this may not be convincing to everyone. That's Mm -hmm. fine. Hopefully it's comprehensible though. Hopefully it's comprehensible. And again, I haven't given the whole story. I haven't I think you to make did. it. I think you did. We'll put it in the notes. I can't remember what episode, but I'll, I'll figure it out. People You'll come wanna, up with it. Okay, yeah, well, I'll stop there. I don't know if that's enough or that's helpful, but. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how to respond to that. I, well, I've heard the story several times. To- in other words, I think I hear your story, but it, it still doesn't, like, quote, make God show up for me. Mm-hmm. It's encouraging in the one sense. It's like, wow, God did this thing for you. I wonder if he'll ever do something like that for me someday. And kind of stopping there. Yeah. But I, I mean, do you need something like that? So from my perspective, I saw that as an act. I, I, and I experienced that as an act of healing. When that happened, I did not believe in God. Right? It took me another three three, three and a half years before I had done the research and come and, and, and in other words, that was an experience that pointed me towards the world being larger than I thought it was. And that experience of largeness, for one thing, when I walked out of there, there was something in me that was just, it was fixed. It was like something that, like a chain that was snapped. Whether I believed in God or not, I had a definite sense that this man loved me, that this man would have me as his son. I mean, I told you about the whole thing about him taking the photos down. After he said that, he took the photos down off the wall and started, started pointing out his family members. He was introducing me to my new family. You know, I had no doubt that what he was saying was 100% legitimate and it broke the power of that previous understanding that if my own father should treat me this way and disdain me so much, how much more so would anyone else? Well, no. That's a lie. And of course, that caused this chain, started to cause this slow uh, erosion, which became a series of chain reactions regarding the other lies. If this isn't true, you know, and it's not then as someone who's done a lot, I had even at, by that point had done a lot of counseling about um, abuse. It wasn't that I didn't understand that they were lies, 
but it was despite my understanding, the lie still had a certain power. Well, the breaking of the chain or the the mending of myself was not that the lies then ceased to be less discernible as lies. I already saw them as lies, but that their power began to slip away. The power that I was constantly pushing back at by reminding myself things like, you are valuable, you are lovable, you are a good person. This was not your responsibility. You know, and I don't do that, didn't even then do that on a daily basis. But the the thoughts come to your head and you've got to deal with them. Well, the thoughts weren't coming to my head anymore. Hmm. Well, maybe they were gone. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, maybe that's what's happening. Maybe that slow process is happening for me as as we have these conversations. And it kind of ties into our conversation from, I think it was, maybe it was 125, episode 125 of, you know, feeling like a poser and where's this going and Uh all those kinds of things. So any last closing thoughts on this article or maybe jumping off points for next time? Well, I had, I had three other comments that I'd picked up from the, those 485 uh, comments on this post that I thought were interesting. And I guess I could boil down all of my comments on the comments to one thing, which is that this is a tricky notion. And, and uh, I respect what uh, the author did in writing on it. And I think the, the Tim's, Tim Lawrence's article here was, or post here is essentially beneficial, but I think that there's a lot of clarity that could be brought. So, you know, this whole idea that take out religion and then you see reason, you see the cause, you see the reason why something happened. Well, no, we're not talking about causality. We're talking about purpose or teleology. So I think there's a whole lot of clarifications that could be brought to bear. And I think that would be helpful for, for anyone. And then I think the whole Christian piece, there was a big dialogue that I had, you know, pointed one that I'd come across between a guy named Rob and a, a woman named Jessica Mueller. And I thought that would be really interesting to go into and just kind of look at, because I think this whole, you know, it just brings up the problem of evil. And every time you do that, you have um, the whole Christian versus, uh, you know, atheist perspective. And yeah, I think that's helpful to look at. It's, it's really valuable. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangling Christianity podcast. A summary and resources for this episode are at our website, untanglingchristianity.com. If you'd like to join our private Facebook group or reach us by email, send your requests, questions, or even a simple hello to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is provided by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license.